Hello and welcome to this week's Reorg Europe podcast. My name is Sean Qureshi and I'm a legal analyst in Reorg's London office. On this week's podcast, we will take a first look at Nearstar with analyst Noor Seher. Jordan Binkliffe, an emerging markets reporter, will discuss some of the issues facing ESCOM. And Manakshi Roy, a legal analyst, will provide a wrap on the European primary market. Last week, piece of German fashion manufacturer Gary Weber's Schulzschein loans were changing hands in the 50s, as investors are sceptical about its ability to repay a 31 million euro loan due at the end of this year. The group's cash as of July the 31st was 20 million euros, and the company may use proceeds for the, from the sale of a showroom in Düsseldorf, which is earmarked to be around 36 million euros, to meet that maturity. Agricor has announced this week that the 23rd session of its Temporary Creditors Council was held with all members attending. Members were once again informed of the fact that the settlement plan has become effective as of 26th of October, whereby one of several conditions precedent to the implementation of the plan has has been met. Justice Glenn, sitting in New York, has granted full recognition and enforcement of Agricor's settlement agreement under Chapter 15 of the US Bankruptcy Code within the US. Astoldi's lenders hired Julian Loki as financial advisor for the company's going concern Concardato procedure. The lenders appointed Alvarez and Marcel to review the business's industrial profile. Among Astoldi's largest creditors are Unicredit, which is owed around 386 million euros, Intesa San Paolo, which is owed 339 million euros, Banco BPM and BNP Paribas, who is owed around 280 million euros. Now, let's move to Nearstar. Noor, can you give us a brief introduction to the company and situation? Okay, so Nearstar is a multi-metals business with leading position in zinc and growing positions in other metals like lead and copper. It mainly operates in two business segments, metal processing and mining. The metal processing contributes about 90% to the total EBITDA and is mainly driven from the profits it gets from its zinc smelting business. Uh, The company has about 340 million bond maturity coming up next year and refinancing given the high leverage of 6.6 and cash burn in the last five years just seems impossible. Moreover, historically, low treatment charges have resulted in a squeeze in margin as the industry suffers from an oversupply. In September, Nairstar issued a profit warning saying its EBITDA for the second half of 2018 is going to be materially below its levels in the first half. This triggered a fall in bond prices. Their 2019 bonds have fallen down to 60 compared to above bar just in September, while the 2024 bonds have fell down to 70 compared to 90 in September. On top of that, Today, there were reports that the company's lead smelter in Portbury might lose its license due to rising lead levels in the air. This has resulted in a further decline in bond prices. So, before we go into greater detail, can you walk us through the capital structure? Sure. 
So as of September 30th, Nairstar had 6.6 times leverage. This was excluding prepays and perpetual securities. If we take prepays and perpetual securities into account, this leverage goes up up to 9.2, which is quite high. Nairstar's leverage rose significantly after 2015 as the company undertook major investments in projects like Port Perry Redevelopment. Net debt stands at 1.1 billion euros. It mainly consists of 261 million in secured facilities, 340 million in 2019 and 500 million 2024 senior unsecured bonds. Apart from this, the company also has 115 million euros Holco convertible bond, which is due 2022. Nairstar has about 668 million euros in liquidity. This mainly comes from 63 million in cash and 216 million in Trafigura facility. The rest of the liquidity comes from the remaining undrawn structured commodity trade finance facility and the KBC facility. The obvious point here is that the company seems to have enough liquidity, but why don't they repay a portion of their 2019 bonds from this liquidity? Hmm. So that's where it gets a bit tricky, Sean. Although they have 668 million euros in liquidity, the 371 million in the structured commodity trade finance facility and the 18 million in the KBC facility are just restricted for working capital and short-term cash needs. Excluding these two, the liquidity available to service debt is just 63 million in cash and the 216 million in Trafigura facility, which can be used for general corporate purposes. However, the Trafigura facility itself is going to expire in December 2019. Thus, repaying the bond from this facility does not seem to be feasible. And on top of that, management has already confirmed that is it does not plan to repay the 2019 bond from its liquidity. And they've also hired Morgan Stanley recently as financial advisors to perform a full capital structure review. You mentioned the Trafigura facility here. Why have Trafigura extended the facility and what is the relationship between the two? So Trafigura indirectly owns 24.6% of Nearstar. It has several long-term prepayment agreements with Nearstar for about one-third of Nearstar's zinc concentrate and one-fifth of Nearstar's zinc metal production. In the past, Trafigura has supported Nearstar's capital structure by providing a $250 million committed facility, and it also underwrote about half of the Nearstar's $274 million rights offering in 2016. Uh, taking this into account and the ongoing relationship that the two have, um, I think there are some hopes that if worst come worst, Trafigura might help Nairstar in refinancing its debt. I recall you mentioned zinc price and treatment charges affecting profitability. What's going on there? So treatment charge is a fee that Nairstar charges miners to refine zinc. It is based on a benchmark rate, which tends to rise when zinc prices go up and falls when zinc prices go down. From 2015 and the first half of 2018, a supply shortage caused zinc prices to rise. In theory, this should have meant that treatment charges 
should be increased. However, in reality, the supply shortage led to smelters like Nearstar competing for contracts with miners. This pushed treatment charges further down. In 2016 and 17, benchmark treatment charges fell 17% and 15% respectively. Treatment charges for 2018 have been set to a decade low levels of $147 per ton without any adjustments to zinc prices. I mean, this is important to note here, Sean, that these treatment charges have been set without any adjustments to treatment charges. As treatment charges now do not adjust to zinc prices, this means that Nearstar's margins are exposed to low zinc prices and their upside potential is reduced even if zinc prices go up. On top of that, about 50% of Nearstar's contracts give a further discount to the benchmark treatment charges. Thus, the realized treatment charge Nearstar gets is about $40 less than the benchmark rate. Unless the benchmark treatment charge is revised or Nearstar renegotiates its contracts, I don't see the situation improving. Taking this into account, what do you think the future cash flows of the company might look like? Nairstar expects to be cash flow positive in 2018. However, this is mainly going to be due to a working capital release driven by a fall in zinc prices in the second half of the year. In my view, medium-term cash generation prospects are low. Additional release from working capital might not be possible once zinc prices bottom out or reverse their trend. In fact, zinc prices have actually started to increase recently. Moreover, uh, the company needs about 150 million euros in sustenance capex and 140 million euros to meet its interest payments. This means that the company has to generate at least 300 million euros in EBITDA to be cash flow positive. And this is keeping into account that there would be no growth capex and the working capital would remain neutral. Nearstar as a company, I think, has pinned all their hopes on the additional 130 million euros EBITDA it expects from Port Perry by 2020. However, the project itself has suffered from cost overruns and project delays. On top of that, today there are reports that the Port Perry lead smelter might lose its license, which makes me rethink if the additional EBITDA expectation would ever be realized. So what are the conclusions for investors? What is the take-home message? Okay. To quickly sum up, I think that the company is headed into restructuring. Even in the unlikely scenario of where Nairstar successfully addresses the 2019 bond maturity, I think its problems are more fundamental and are likely to continue. Historically, low treatment charges continue to strain margins. And on top of that, about 50% of Nairstar's contracts provide a further discount to already low treatment charges. In my view, unless zinc prices rise or Nearstar renegotiates its contracts, margins are likely to remain low. The 130 million euros additional EBITDA expected from Port Perry might also never get realized, considering that the project had cost overruns, delays, and there are fears now that 
the lead smelter in Port Perry might lose its license. Thanks. Now let's move over to the primary market, where Minakshi has been looking at some of the issuances over the last month. Minakshi, how has October looked? Thanks, Sean. We saw October kick off with Warner Music issuing its senior secureds due 2026 with an unbelievably predated RP income basket. It was backdated to July 2011 with the accumulated credit not being disclosed. Uh, the issuer is permitted to make RPs with a portion of the accumulated credit which presents a wide berth for cash leakage. Uh, we also saw Playtech bringing its senior secureds due 2023 with no RP covenants at all. Um, but with the saving grace of a protective negative pledge. The pledge applies to all assets and revenues of the issuer, guarantors and subsidiaries securing any debt, which offers somewhat robust protection against any subordination risk. Ricordati, the Italian pharma company, took advantage of the relative lull in the market and issued its Euro 1.3 billion senior secureds and senior secured floating rate notes to finance CVC's acquisition of 51.8% stake in the Recordati family business. What does Recordati's structure look like? Were there any features that stood out to you? Um, Recordati's structure is actually very interesting and very complicated, and it hinges on the company's ability to upstream dividends to Rosini, the holding company which issued the bonds. Essentially, CVC and its co-investors will pay about 2.3 billion euros in cash to the Recordati family and will issue 750 million euros of subordinated debt notes. And eventually, CVC is expected to launch a mandatory cash tender offer for the remaining 48% of the outstanding Recordati stock. The covenant structure for this deal was bespoke to say the least, and it came to market with a permitted sell-down feature essentially allowing CVC to reduce its stake in Recordati to up to 35%. Uh, while retaining control of the company, with the proceeds being available for RP distributions if Recordati could meet its deposit condition after making a permitted sell-down offer to note holders. We saw buy-side pushback specifically around this provision requiring documentation to be amended to curb this flexibility. Recordati deserves special mention, not just for the covenant structure, but also for the fact that the banks were able to place the bonds in a climate of severe sell-off in the equity markets across Asia, US and Europe. An Italian deal closing when Italian government bonds were in meltdown is noteworthy. We saw Netflix come to the market. What did its note offering look like? Netflix came to the market with its Euro 1.1 billion, 4.625% senior notes due 2029 and its $800 million senior notes due 2029 with proceeds earmarked for general corporate purposes. The deals, both, both the deals lacked RP and debt in current covenants. They also lacked covenants for transaction with affiliates and an asset sales proceeds repayment reinvestment criteria. Deals launched without these typical high-yield protections should ideally include a strong negative pledge. Now, Netflix skirted around that as well with a sale and leaseback revision that applies only to principal properties of the issuer and domestic restricted subsidiaries. What does this mean for investors and for Netflix? It means that Netflix can choose to exclude assets from the negative pledge. Investors may have taken heart from the inclusion of a subsidiary debt in current covenant, which protects against incremental subordination. Now, interestingly, these deals were 10.5-year non-call for life 
and yet they had to price at the higher end of the price expectations. The new bonds boosted Netflix total indebtedness to over 10 billion, but S&P recently upgraded its credit rating to BB minus, saying that the streaming leader would see its revenues and profitability grow in 2018 and 2019. Were there any other bonds which have come to market? Uh, well, Victoria approached the primary market with its Euro 450 million senior secureds 2023 to refinance its 445 million bridge loan incurred to fund the acquisition of Ceramica Saloni in August 2018. Now, the bond documentation in itself was not particularly contentious, um, barring a ratio determination flexibility clause, which we have come to expect in almost all bonds in the current climate. But the bond faced pricing difficulties and it forced management to recall the placement. Management had to issue statements to reassure shareholders that they are operating with significant headrooms to meet covenant ratios under their existing two-year facilities that they put in place in 2018. Besides Victoria, Melicom came to market with a 500 million senior unsecured notes offering due 2026 to partly fund its acquisition of an 80% stake in Cable Onda. And in terms of take-home messages for investors, what was a pervasive feature in the majority of the recent issuances? One thing we saw across most deals were the aggressive EBITDA addbacks and limited conditionality flexibility. Now, while EBITDA addbacks continue unabated, and it's something we've discussed in our previous podcasts, we see an increase in the use of limited conditionality flex, which allows issuers to choose the date they want to run the covenant ratio they can essentially choose to run the covenant ratio on the date of entering or signing into a definitive agreement, as opposed to having to run the ratio on the actual date of closing, which could be many months after the signing. Um, We also saw uh, Hema, the Dutch retailer, and Wagamama, the popular Asian restaurant, take advantage of portability clauses in their bond documentation to override the 101% change of control put note holders would otherwise have been entitled to. Now, to Jordan, can you start by giving us a background of ESCOM? Sure thing. So um, ESCOM is South Africa's electricity utility and it supplies power to the entire country. It's been dogged with ballooning borrowing and expenditure and most recently South Africa's opposition political party, the Democratic Alliance, proposed breaking the utility up. The Democratic Alliance's leader, Musi Maman, told Reorg this week that the main focus of reshaping ESCOM should not be on reducing its current debt, but avoiding a large financial crisis which, if ESCOM defaults, would spill over to the South African government very quickly due to all of the state guarantees. The worry, say the Democratic Alliance, is that ESCOM is a, quote, zombie state-owned entity that is so financially precarious it could pull down the entire South African economy if it were to fail. The Democratic Alliance wants to replace it with a new entity and to undertake a restructuring of the electricity sector to make it more efficient. Pretty strong stuff. Besides the worry over the sustainability of the utility's finances, why else does the Democratic Alliance want to break the utility up? So among the rap sheets of uh, ESCOM's problems presented by the Democratic Alliance are the corruption and mismanagement of coal contracts and a decision not to invest in coal plus mines. The party also takes issue with the utilities plans to take on another 212 billion South African rand in additional debt over the coming four years and a lack of transparency over a 33 billion rand loan from the China Development Bank. 
My man recently asked ESCOM for further details on and transparency around the China Development Bank loan. The utility disclosed that the facility has a 180-month tenor, the first repayment is due after 60 months, and the interest is to be paid on March 12th and September 12th. ESCOM did not specifically state that the loan is guaranteed, but refers to the applicable government guarantee arrangement on its website. ESCOM also said that it would not disclose the interest rates agreed to, total amount payable, total interest charges or annual percentage rate because it contains financial information which, if disclosed, would harm the commercial and financial interests of China Development Bank and have a detrimental effect on ESCOM. So basically most of the details people might want to know about the deal. So the Democratic Alliance wants to break ESCOM up. How does it suggest doing so? What will take ESCOM's place? The party outlined a bill with the proposals at a parliamentary press conference in late October. It wants to break up the utility's monopoly of the electricity market and allow cities to purchase directly from independent power producers. The Democratic Alliance's bill aims to create an entity that is financially sound, has efficient systems management, acts as an electricity trader, guides electricity supply and transmission planning, is responsible for the integrated power system and will dispatch within this integrated system. It's probably fair to say the party doesn't think ESCOM fulfills these criteria at the moment and didn't pull any punches when it described ESCOM in its existing state as a bloated and rotting hulk. The party suggests creating an independent system and market operator, also known as an ISMO, to act as an electricity trader functioning independently of generation businesses to encourage competition and innovation. The ISMO, to be owned by the South African state, would be tasked with buying electricity from producers and would function as a wholesaler of electricity, selling to distributors and customers at a wholesale tariff. Some of ESCOM's operations could also be sold off to private infrastructure investors, my man said. On a panel during an African investment conference in Dubai recently, my man commented that future growth in Africa must be driven by privatisation and not the state-led management which, in his view, exposes the country to corruption and a great loss of money. So, will this actually happen? Proposals to break up ESCOM are definitely not new. As far back as 1998, the Energy White Paper saw the government agreeing that ESCOM would be restructured into separate generation and transmission companies. This was followed by a bill brought by the ANC that similarly proposed breaking up the utility. This was uh, shelved in March 2014. So ESCOM has been a candidate for unbundling for quite a long time, but has so far avoided being broken up into parts. It's hard to say whether the Democratic Alliance's proposal will be brought into effect in some manner. In a July poll, the party had 13% support against the incumbent ANC's 60%. Elections are scheduled for the first half of 2019. However, given that both parties have previously proposed breaking up ESCOM, it looks as though it could eventually happen. In October, the ANC's finance minister, Tito Moweni, said that restructuring of the electricity sector is underway and must include a long-term plan to restructure ESCOM and deal with its debt obligations. The process will include a review of the existing electricity pricing policy. So what's happening with ESCOM's turnaround plan at the moment? ESCOM retained Lazard for financial advisory services and analysis of balance sheet optimization. The utility is in the process of reviewing reports from Lazard and Boston Consulting Group and has pledged to present a strategic plan later in November. The utility is expected to announce its long-term strategic plan when it releases its first half report, so this story should develop further in the coming weeks. Thank you, Jordan. Uh, This is the end of the Reorg Europe podcast. Thank you to everyone today and... We will be back in two weeks' time on the 22nd of November. Goodbye.